And a warm welcome to a special edition of First Move, coming to you live from the headquarters of the International Monetary Fund here in Washington, D.C. A whole group of finance ministers, central bank governors, thought leaders are meeting here at an incredible and exceptionally high risk moment, I think, for the global economy. We have growth, and I can take you through all of the, the uh, issues and the debates going on. Growth, but it's slow. Inflation is retreating, but of course we know it's still too high. There's unsustainable debt levels across emerging markets, plus the recent wave of, let's call them tremors, across the banking system too, all adding to what the International Monetary Fund said coming into this meeting is a fog of economic uncertainty. Well, the good news is we're going to be here and hearing from a distinguished group of newsmakers over the coming hour just to get and test their level of concern at this moment. How do we reach consensus? How are they debating some of the big issues? And, and what are the most important aspects to focus on as we head through the rest of the year? Coming up over the next hour, we have the World Bank President, David Malpass. He, of course, has been leading this global debt roundtable to discuss the urgent need to tackle the growing debt crisis hitting emerging markets. We have also Mohamed El Arian, advisor to both Allianz and Gramercy funds on the huge challenge that still faces policymakers, including central bankers, how to fight inflation while at the same time preserving financial stability and not denting growth too much further. We're also going to hear from the Eurogroup president, Pascal Donahoe, on how EU nations can jumpstart growth while balancing the books, of course. We all know reform is hard, consensus is hard too, as we're seeing right now across France. Plenty to come on the show and much to discuss. For now, though, we do begin the show and start in Boston, where a 21-year-old man is accused of leaking classified information and is due to appear in court later today. The FBI has arrested Jack Teixeira on Thursday. It's believed he posted the highly sensitive documents online to impress his friends. Natasha Bertrand joins us now from the Pentagon. Natasha, huge questions to ask ahead of this appearance in court, but primarily, I think, how someone so young and so junior had access to this information was available to leak it in the first place. Juliet, that is the big question that the Pentagon is grappling with right now, and that is something that the Pentagon Press Corps grilled the Pentagon Press Secretary about yesterday. Someone who is so junior, really had just entered the military a few years ago, was an E3, which is one of the lowest rankings of an enlisted member of the military. Uh, how did he access these top-secret documents, many of which are briefed up to the senior uh, Pentagon leadership every day, including as high, of course, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. So the question now is, what is the military going to do about this problem? Because clearly, uh, this kind of highly sensitive classified information is just being seen and disseminated to too many people. Well, what we're told is that the Defense Department has launched an internal review of intelligence access, and they're going to be looking at basically best practices here. Do they need to change uh, how this information is distributed? Distributed because previously we were told this information was seen and disseminated uh, to thousands of people in the government. Clearly, this uh, individual who is alleged to have leaked uh, these classified documents was able to see them somehow. He may not have had the proper clearance to actually access them properly. That is still being uh, figured out here. But still, he was part of the intelligence wing of the Air National Guard in Massachusetts, uh, which would presumably give him access uh, or at least visibility into a lot of these documents. So the Pentagon now saying, uh, according to our sources, that they are, they are severely limiting uh, the distribution of these kinds of materials in the meantime as 
they do this review. And we are told that officials across the U.S. government who were receiving these kinds of documents over the last several months and even years have actually stopped receiving them in recent days. So clearly the Pentagon is already trying to crack down on where, uh, why, and how uh, this information is distributed, Julia. Yeah, Natasha, one of the other questions I think that everyone's asking, particularly in light of other nations that are involved in this, who've come forward and said, look, some of this information is incorrect. Do we have any sense of his ability to be able to edit some of this documentation as well? I think that's one of the other big questions is the veracity of the information that's now out there. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, according to the Washington Post, some of the documents that he was uh, disseminating onto this private group chat, he had actually transcribed by hand. Uh, and it became very tedious for him after a while. And so eventually he just started taking uh, photographs of the documents themselves and uploading them onto this server. It is not clear at this point whether he altered any of them. They do appear to be photographs of these, do- of these hard copies, printed out copies of these documents themselves. So it would have been likely a little bit difficult to edit them in that way. Um, But once these hit the internet and once they started being uh, spread around, for example, on pro-Russian telegram channels and on Twitter, that is when bad actors could have potentially taken them and altered them. And in fact, we are told that at least one of the documents was altered after the fact uh, by someone who had the motive to inflate uh, Ukrainian casualty numbers as part of the war in Ukraine, for example. So it wasn't necessarily that he altered them, although that will be investigated, but that once those bad actors got a hold of the documents that were already already out there, they seized on them to produce disinformation, Julia. Yeah, it's all just completely mind-boggling and uh, certainly a hot topic of conversation here amid trust, amid uh, geopolitical partners here and the discussions taking place. Natasha, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now on to one of our other top stories today. French priest on high alert this hour ahead of a key court ruling on pension reform. Protesters clashed once again on Thursday, angry over the French government's plans to raise the retirement age by two years. Earlier here at the uh, International Monetary Fund, our Richard Quest spoke to the French finance minister who condemned the violence. I would not say that the level of uh, unease is growing. We have violence in the street. I I strongly condemn all uh, violence. But nevertheless, the process is uh, going on. We are waiting for the very last decision of the French Supreme Court tomorrow. I just want to emphasize how vital this reform is for our pension system. We have a a very efficient, very generous pension system, but we need to ensure to the French citizen that there is a financial balance by 2030. This is the purpose of the reform. France, of course, facing a similar challenge to many other Eurozone nations and other global nations. How to balance the books after years of high spending, necessary high spending, at a time of high uncertainty. Here with some of the answers, we hope, Eurogroup President Pascal Donahoe. Great to have you with us, sir. Um, Just looking at the situation in France, but it's a challenge that many nations face at this moment, not wanting to add to the inflationary outlook, but also having to balance the books after years of spending. How do you find the balance? By acknowledging the fact that we have come through very, very difficult times, uh, that our economies are still growing, uh, despite the many challenges that we are facing due to the war in Ukraine. Uh, We're still in a situation of high employment and we have to use those as foundations to also make the case for budgetary policy across this year and next year changing course. Uh, Because we are at a time of high inflation, we are at a time in which the cost of borrowing is going up, 
and we need to tread the path between responding back to that and then maintaining the support of our societies for the change that is needed. You just have to do that and get re-elected, as uh, the French government, I think, is proving here. And it's a communication message that's difficult for people at a time of, of high prices and, um, and difficult choices. Well, I think there's two components to us. There is, as you say, what's the communication of policy, but that it's also what is the content of policy. From a content point of view, it is about saying we do need to make some changes. We have to move away from the kind of spending plans that we had during COVID. Right. But when we are doing that, we can still maintain investment in those things that really matter to our societies. And the EU is playing a huge role in that through our Recovery and Resilience Fund. And then there's the second C that you just said there, which is the C of communication. Uh, as we're implementing those policies, making the case for why that change is needed, because if inflation stays with us into the medium term at a high rate, we're all going to be a lot poorer for a lot longer. And we need to make the case for avoiding that happening. Yeah, and I think also people need to understand that the European Central Bank is doing its part to, to raise interest rates. Governments also have to not add fuel to the fire in terms of the inflationary picture with their, with their spending too. The other option is looking outside for growth opportunities as well. India, China, I think, sort of bucking the broader trend of growth slowdown and concern as we come into this IMF meeting. Um, China's created some eyebrow raising, I think, with some of the European leaders that have headed over there. And this balance between wanting China to play a role in the resolution of, of conflict in Ukraine, but at the same time representing a still an ongoing growth opportunity. How do you find that balance? So we, of course, do need to engage with China from a trade perspective. Uh, again, it's worth acknowledging, however, that for last year, the overall economic growth of the euro area was actually ahead, for example, of where America was. Uh, so we need to approach that kind of negotiation and that kind of discussion with China from a greater position of strength. I mean, it does appear to me that further trade with China is an inevitable feature of the global economic model that we're in. Uh, but from a European perspective, I want us to be involved in those trade discussions and those commercial opportunities in a position of greater strength than we are at the moment. What does that look like? policies to help Europe grow quicker, despite the inflationary balance we need to maintain, and then how we can invest in our own banking, our own capital market systems, so that we're better in a position to fund our own growth. I'm sort of trying to read between the lines there. Does that mean you're in the Emmanuel Macron camp, perhaps, of less reliance on the United States, particularly as you make that comparison between sort of growth outlooks between the Eurozone and the United States, and, and acknowledging and recognising the fact that China is a vital trade partner and will continue to be so? Yeah, I'm not sure those kind of trade-offs are implicit in what I'm saying. I mean, we're here uh, in the heart of uh, Washington and the US at the moment. Oh, there very much are. And the essence of politics and economic policy is to make trade-offs. Right. I am so committed uh, to global trade. I believe the last time uh, we were all at a time of war, we are all at a time in which multilateral cooperation was beginning to decline uh, between the world wars of a century ago. A huge mistake was made in moving away from multilateral collaboration in allowing world trade to begin to decline and fragment. Mm -hmm. I believe we need to avoid that happening. I believe we need to deepen our trading relationships with the US and with China. But I also believe that as we are doing that, we do need to build up the resilience of Europe. We do need to deepen our own economic foundations. 
to therefore be in economic relationships that are growing, but also mutually beneficial. If we compare where the Eurozone is today versus 12 months ago and the, the fear sure. and the consequences of what the war would mean, are you sort of more optimistic about the outlook certainly today than you were perhaps a year ago? I just wonder whether in the, the Eurogroup meetings that you hold, whether the end of the war is discussed, whether more sanctions on Russia are discussed, because at the crux of all the challenges is this short-term issue that persists. So just to deal with the, your two questions there, yeah. yes, I am more optimistic. If I look at where we are now within the euro area, if I look at the tone of these meetings here, yeah. as you say, just over a year ago, the question everybody was posing to us is, recession is inevitable, when will it happen? Mm. Actually, with economic growth of nearly 3.5% this year, and even though our growth expectation for this year is less than 1%, it's still growth. So I am more optimistic. But that then leads into the, you know, your excellent second point then, which is so much of our economic outlook continues to be contingent on what happens with regard to the war. But leaving aside the economics of all of that, there are some things that matter more. And what is more is Ukraine winning. What matters more is repelling their invasion, which they're suffering from. Because ultimately, if the values and principles that are at stake there fragment and are weakened, the political, ethical, not to mention economic consequences of that in the long run would be so negative and so big. So in our economic discussions, the focus is still unambiguous, stand by the people of Ukraine, have the right sanctions in place and fund them while they are dealing with this war. Makes sense. Very quickly, I cannot have you here and not ask you about President Biden's presence, of course, in Ireland while you're here in the, in the US in Washington, D.C. You're smiling. He's already said a few times, I think, that he might stay. He loves it that much, clearly. Well, I think he will be very, very welcome. <laughs> okay. But I think there'll be lots of people in America and Washington that will want him back. But it's been a hugely successful visit. And what he is underscoring is the value of what the US, Europe and the UK achieved in the Good Friday Agreement, how much it has done in bringing violence to an end but how much more it could still do. But he'd obviously be very welcome if he wants to make a longer weekend of us. <laughs> more of a longer-term stay. Pascal Thank Donahue. you very Great much. Great to have you on. Thank, Thank you. you. Your group president speaking there. All right, more First Move live from the International Monetary Fund headquarters coming up. Mohamed el joins us next. Much more to discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to the World, I was going to say the World Economic Forum. No, nope, wrong place. The International Monetary Fund Spring Meetings here for a special edition of First Move, where the real world remains front and centre too, and bank earnings in the United States certainly front and centre to give us a sense of what the outlook is from some of these banks and their concerns going forward too. And I have to say, I've just been looking through some of the numbers and resiliency for some of the largest banks in the United States. It's the watchword, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo and Citigroup all reporting better than expected results. JP Morgan also boosting its outlook for net interest income. That's a key source of revenue thanks to strong depositor inflows. They, of course, have benefited from some of the outflows that we've seen from the smaller banks. The key is what pressure the regional banks will face and what they say in their upcoming results. But clearly there's much to discuss. And I'm pleased to say Allianz and Gramercy advisor Mohamed El Arian joins us now. Great to have you uh, in person. Thanks and for to talk, me. it's been a while. Um, what do you make of the sentiment here? We can bring it round and talk about credit risk and some of the banks, but I think the tone coming into here was perhaps far more negative than the conversations that, that I'm having here. Is that your sense too? Uncertainty's high, tone better. I think that's 
perfect way of capturing yeah. it. I think we came in much more gloomy and people are starting to realize that we do have issues, there are uncertainties, but it's not all gloom and doom. What are you looking for as we push out throughout the rest of the year? I mean, we can talk about the financial sector, we can talk about the debt metrics in emerging markets, we can talk about the need to tackle some of the bigger issues. We've still got the war in Ukraine. I can make a whole list of them. Um, what's key still for you? So I think we have three big issues. Yeah. One is how do we grow and grow inclusively? Meaning also how do we deal with our supply issues? We have a problem of supply, not demand. Issue number one. Issue number two is how do we deal with inequality? And then issue number three, which has to do with the banks, is not how do the big banks, how do the smaller banks and how do the levered institutions get used to a mishandled interest rate cycle? And that's going to be a key issue. We've just had in the past week inflation numbers. We've now got inflation in the United States of what, 5%? Core inflation, admittedly, a bit higher than that. If you're the Federal Reserve now, so how do you handle this? Do you say, look, we just lie to people and say, look, this is better than we perhaps had hoped. It's still going to come down. We're still going to focus on that. But don't crush the economy so much that you break things now with more interest rate hikes. So the fundamental issue is that we have an inflation target of 2%. Yes. That is not built for today's world. Yeah. It's built for yesterday's world. So if you try to get to 2%, you will crush the economy. Yeah. So you have a few choices. One is you crush the economy, which I think is your own choice. Two is you change your target. You can't do that when you've missed it. Three is do exactly what you said. Lie. Tell people, well, <laughs> tell people we'll get to 2% somewhere down the road yeah. and see whether we can live with 4% stable inflation. And that would be the right choice. It's not a perfect choice, but when you are so late in reacting and then you've had to front load because you've been so late, you end up in the world of second best. Is second best still avoiding recession? Or do you still think that that's a likely, a greater than likely um, potential? So I think the probability has gone up, but yeah. I do not think it's a done deal. No. I mean, this economy is incredibly resilient. And it has surprised on the upside over and over again. Now, if we get more policy mistakes, yes, we'll go into recession. There's no doubt about that. But on its own, this economy does not need to go into recession. There's going to have to be a reconciliation moment, though, too, between what we're seeing in the stock markets, what we're seeing in the bond markets, to your point about what investors in the bond markets are saying about where rate hikes and then rate cuts are going versus what the Federal Reserve is saying. How does all that sort of that's the wash big, out. That's <laughs> a big, you have three big differences. Yeah. One is between what the Fed is telling us about where interest rates are going to go and what the market is telling us. The market says a hundred, a full percentage points lower than what the Fed is telling us. I've never seen something like that. Mm. The second one is between what Fed staff is telling us and what Fed leadership is telling us. That I've never seen before. And then third, what the bond market is telling us and what the equity market is telling us. So we're going to have to reconcile these three things in the months ahead. The other thing I think that we're talking about here at the International Monetary Fund, get it right this time, um, is I think the outliers, China, India, and the growth rebound that we're seeing, as we sort of build a global picture of what the coming months looks like, are we perhaps even now underestimating the growth impulse that we get from those parts of the world? You know, it's very hard to be a good house in a challenged neighborhood. Yeah. So I, I think <laughs> China and India will certainly outperform with 5% growth rates, 4.5%, 5%. I do think they're going to be the engine of growth. But the question is, can they sustain it if the rest of the global economy doesn't come up with better growth policies? And the one issue we need to discuss over and over again is how do we generate inclusive economic growth? Right.
I mean, this is, let's talk about this because this is vitally important and this is at the heart, I think, of the, the broader discussions at the IMF for the spring meetings and that is, to your point, in advanced economies, a low growth environment and the policies that are required to boost that, but also that there needs to be some kind of debt suspension, some allowance for some of the poorest nations in the world that they're not already in debt distress are approaching it and they have to make tough spending decisions too on some of the bigger issues like climate transition and finance. It's the two policy choices and directions that we need to be pushing for and at a time of, sort of geopolitical fragmentation can we come together to make the right choices collectively? I hope so but it's being really slow. Yeah. We should have come together two years ago, three years More. ago on the debt of the low-income countries and what's happening now is for those countries that haven't fallen into default they are redirecting money from the social sectors from health, from education, from things that really matter in terms of long-term well-being to paying debts that are going to be rescheduled anyway. We have to find a way to have a preemptive and orderly rescheduling. Unfortunately, the IMF and the World Bank have been working very hard on this, yeah. but they haven't been able to get the countries to agree. I mean, the, one of the big sticking points, and I don't really want to point fingers, but unfortunately we have to, one of the biggest creditors in the world um, is China. and. We've sort of learned in, in particular over the last few months that they don't want to be told what to do by big institutions, by other nations, whoever they are, quite frankly. How do you bring them as the largest private creditor in the world to, to many of these nations to the table and, and help them accept that something's got to give? So they're slowly coming to the table. Are they? Yeah, I think they're slowly coming to the table. They're recognizing. But China, China has a point that we have to address, which is that we continue to govern the system in a way that made sense after the Second World right. War and in a way that doesn't acknowledge enough the changes. Um, and that is what they're doing is actually they're creating different institutions and different approaches. Yeah. And they've had bilateral agreements with countries that have been completely outside. And of course, they've built other institutions that replicate what's being done. So if we're not careful, China will continue to build little pipes around the core of the system and that will fragment the global economy more. And those agreements have to be honored too and accepted by longer existing institutions that perhaps have a tendency to ride roughshod. Correct, absolutely yeah. right. Can we get there? Um, it's been too slow, but I hope we can get there because the alternative is much worse. I agree. Give us a reason to be optimistic. Oh, there's many reasons to be optimistic. <laughs> We've recognized the importance of economic growth. We've recognized the importance of a climate transition yeah. and, and the importance of the environment. We've recognized how public-private partnerships can work. The vaccine was an amazing public-private partnership. There's lots of reasons to be um, optimistic. We just have to stop making mistakes. Yeah. Is that the biggest risk we still face, even Correct. today? Correct. Policymakers and We have a mindset okay, that hasn't adjusted to the, the new realities. Yeah. Time to wake up and smell the coffee. It's strong. <laughs> I need some too. Mohamed Alarian, great to chat to you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Now, as we were just discussing their debt dynamics for emerging markets, a crucial part of the discussions here. Coming up after this, we're going to be speaking to the World Bank president. This has been a focus of his for many years. We're going to discuss what progress, what's holding nations back, like China, but more, of course, and what more can be done. Stay with First Move. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move Live from the International Monetary Fund headquarters in Washington, D.C. First, let me bring you up to speed with some of the headlines that we're watching around the world. 
A low-ranking U.S. Air National Guardsman will appear in court soon, accused of leaking classified military secrets. The FBI arrested 21-year-old Jack Teixeira on Thursday. He's believed to be the leader of an online chat group where the documents were posted. And to Israel now, where police clashed with Palestinians gathered near the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Video obtained by CNN shows police using stun grenades early Friday. It's unclear what sparked the confrontation. Last week, two police raids were carried out on the grounds, a site revered in both Islam and Judaism. And U.S. President Joe Biden on the final day of his trip in Ireland. No politics on the agenda today. He's exploring his Irish heritage as he wraps up a three-day visit to his ancestral homeland. And you can see him waving, smiling there as he steps off Air Force One, arriving in Knock. And Doni O'Sullivan joins us now. Doni, what can you tell us about the Knock Shrine, Doni? I want all the history. How exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you're, test, you're testing my Irish Catholicism here. Uh, I, of course. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we're, we are here in County Mayo. Uh, just down the road is uh, the Knock Shrine, where uh, Biden, I believe, is, 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 is just arriving at. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the main uh, Catholic shrine uh, in Ireland, an apparition, locals say, in 1879 uh, of Jesus, Mary and John. Uh, and since then, it has you know, the most um, sacred place in Ireland um, in, in, in the Catholic faith. So very significant that he is going uh, there. Uh, after that, he's going to be talking to, um, and actually, as we're looking, as we're just here, there's a, a, a White House helicopter uh, going overhead. Um, not sure if that's him or not. Um, then he's going to be uh, speaking to some genealogists, uh, about his links to, uh, to Mayo. His great, great, great grandfather, Edward Blewett, actually grew up uh, on this street. Um, and his uh, ancestral home is just here, uh, was just here behind me. Uh, and then tonight he's going to come here to Ballina for really what is uh, the main event of this visit, a spectacular setting down by the River Moy uh, outside a cathedral, and he's going to address what is expected to be thousands of people. We're already seeing hundreds of people uh, lining up here already. So a lot of excitement uh, for a, the great, great, great grandson uh, of Ballina to come home. Tony, I'm still laughing and I'm so mean. I'm very impressed by your knowledge of that. I was expecting you uh, not to say anything, quite frankly. Um, talk about that ancestral <laughs> home, though, too, because the other thing I read was that he's actually going to be given a brick of his ancestral home, apparently. Too. I mean, he looks so at home there, let's be clear. He spent three days looking very comfortable. Yeah. Yes, so, um, you know, <laughs> the, there is, we were actually shown by uh, the person who now owns uh, the property where the ancestral home used to be on, that there is a wall, which they claim is part uh, of that original home. So I believe that is a piece of that wall is going to be gifted to him. Uh, I will say, <laughs> in our days uh, here, a lot of people making a lot of different connections to Biden. Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, if everybody who's claiming uh, to be his cousin might actually be related to him or not. Uh, but we certainly know that the Blewett family uh, here in uh, in Ballina, who we've spoken to uh, over the past few days and the past few weeks, uh, they have a very close connection uh, with the president. They were actually, some of them were over uh, in the White House uh, on St. Patrick's Day just last month. Uh, and so that reunion here, it, it is a, it's a very genuine connection uh, he has with this town. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, Doni, whether um, there are people that are claiming some connection to him that, quite frankly, don't have a connection. But I think you you, are, you answered that question for me. He has lots of relations there, apparently. <laughs> there's, a lo- there, there's, a, there's a lot of that going on. But look, I mean, I think that's uh, part of the, the fun of it. There is an incredible atmosphere here. I yeah. mean, obviously... Uh, President Biden has a lot of stuff going on at home, a lot of problems, of course, the intelligence leaks. And he's even joked this week uh, that he wishes he could stay uh, in Ireland a bit longer. Uh, So, you know, JFK, President Kennedy began this tradition 60 years ago uh, of coming to Ireland. He was, of course, the first uh, Catholic president of the United States. Joe Biden is the second. Uh, He came here 60 years ago, started this tradition of tracing uh, Irish roots. And since then, many, uh, several U.S. presidents have come back, Nixon, Reagan, Obama. uh, But people here are saying that uh, Biden is the most Irish of all the American presidents. Yes, and I think you may use a great point, which is I think he'd perhaps rather be there than back home right now. So um, I think there's going to be some good parties tonight. And Donny, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, as always, for bearing with me and my naughty questions. Um, We'll speak soon. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But still ahead, as we were discussing with Mohammed El Arian, a desperately needed solution for debt sustainability across poorer nations. How did the talks this week go? What more needs to be done? David Malpass, World Bank President, joins us next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move Live from the International Monetary Fund and World Bank Spring meetings here in Washington, D.C. And actually where a historic global sovereign debt roundtable has been taking place. It's a subject that we've spoken about many times with the World Bank president here on First Move. This is a first of its kind meeting to bring both public and private creditors together to help give emphasis and importance to debt restructuring relief to help some of the poorest nations in the world. Finding a solution is something that the entire world needs to care about. The World Bank says developing nations will be unable to find trillions of dollars they need to combat big issues like climate change if these debt burdens and sustaining repaying these debts remain too high. I'm pleased to say World Bank President David Malpass joins us now on the show. Fantastic to have you. Great to see you in person as well. I think there's two big themes here. For the advanced nations, the growth is too low and that needs to be reinforced and measures need to be taken to boost that. But also for the poorer nations, they need some debt relief. I know this is something that you've been working on now for years. Talk to me about the Sovereign Debt Roundtable. There was some progress, but you're also disappointed that more wasn't done. Talk to me through. That's right. And the amounts of money are really important to countries that are poor. And so from the global standpoint, they're not large and it should be solved. For the poorer countries, it's an immense uh, problem. It's much more money going out than what they get in development assistance. And so that means there's a net negative flow from the world. That's part of this global harsh environment for developing countries. They're getting crowded out of global markets in general, and the debt uh, crisis is one part of that. 
So we had the, 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 the round table. I've been setting, working to get this set up uh, for, for a time. And it brings together, as you said, and, and it's important, to bring, it brings together debtors and also a broad range of creditors. The previous processes had been exclusive. They're, they were narrow. Uh, and they didn't, for example, let the debtor country be in the room when their fate was being discussed. So we had everyone there uh, two days ago. Uh, it was successful in the sense that everyone is well-meaning uh, and that they want to share information earlier in the process. That's important. There was discussion of the need for timelines so that there can actually be some sense that of progress being made. Uh, at, but from the standpoint of actually getting it done, then it comes down to what's the next steps for uh, Ethiopia, for Zambia, for Ghana. Uh, and in that regard, that we're watching day by day hoping for progress from the creditors' committees that have been set up on those countries. Let's talk about China. We have to, because they're the largest private creditor. And there are a whole host of issues here, and you've touched upon one of them, I think, which is transparency and information sharing. And a lot of the deals that have been signed and the loans that have been provided, um, there's non-disclosure agreements attached to them. The, the details are too opaque. Did you make any progress in even trying to an understanding what those terms are and understanding perhaps how they can be in some way adjusted? What was the reaction when you mentioned the word suspension, perhaps? Uh, country by country, we are uh, uh, trying to have reconciliation of the amounts owed. Right. That gets inside these contracts. There was mention at the roundtable that perhaps the, the borrowing country who is under the, the effect of the non-disclosure clause yeah. could itself share the contracts with the world so that other creditors could see what they were getting into within a debt restructuring. Because if one, one group of creditors has undisclosed terms in their contract, how can you form a comparable you deal? You can't. Uh, and so as we, as we look at that, that's one avenue to be explored. Quite a few of these, uh, uh, we, we are, I'm, we're, I'm pushing hard to set up a, a workshop in May, uh, which would bring together technical aspects of these teams. We work closely with the IMF, with the G20, uh, to get uh, uh, open discussion of debt suspension. Is that a possibility for those countries that want it? If you're a debtor country, right now you have no recourse. You, you, you go into the common framework right now with the worry that it may take two years before people even meet. And, so, and getting investment during that time is, is impossible. I mean, this is the other point that you were making at the beginning. We need investment into these countries. They need to um, produce climate finance, adaption finance. If they're locked out of financial markets, if they're just burdened by debt repayments, that freezes. This is a crucial part of this too. Exactly right. There's urgency to this because the amounts of money needed by the countries for their own development, for climate adaptation, yeah. which is uh, which is an ever-present concern in the countries, uh, those are massive amounts of money. But at, at present, there's not the capital inflow from the advanced economies. And in fact, the debt payments are, are really drawing down their international reserves and weakening their currencies. So that shows up as inflation for the poor in those countries. So it, the urgency is clear. Uh, the question is, for example, for, for Zambia, they're going to have a meeting in a week or so with their creditor committee. Uh, and the hope is that there'll be a, uh, a, a, a restructuring 
deal. This has been going on for two years, so it's time to actually write down what the restructuring deal would be and for China to agree to recognize that it's in China's interest to really get this moving along. The private sector has said that, we, that, that it would be better for the private sector to have predictability. Just tell me what the, what the future is, because then I can invest either in that country or in other countries. Uh, same, China should come to that same recognition that this is actually a good way out of these debt amounts. They aren't large for, from China's standpoint, but they're very large for the countries. Yeah. And is China on board with that? Because we are in a situation now, I think, and it's the sort of final question on this, where China's making it very clear that they don't want to be told what to do by another nation's government, by a, a body, an institution like the IMF or by the World Bank that was started in a different part of the world and operates differently. So Can we bypass <laughs> all of that? We're trying hard not to tell them what to do, but to right. show them that there's there's benefits to them in 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 going in this direction and getting it resolved. Clearly, some parts of China are on board with doing that, but the actual creditors, if you think about on whose balance sheet are these loans inside China, they, 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 they're, they're, there's China XM Bank, there's China Development Bank. These are entities that protect their balance sheets. Yeah. So there, there needs to be some top-down discussion in China of, look, uh, uh, their, their losses have been occurred in the past. We want to work through them and move forward. Uh, and so that will be a way to go. It would be a constructive way. One of the other topics of discussion that I get asked, and, and it's critical to what we're seeing on the war in Ukraine, the data that the IMF, that the World Bank is providing, is, is whether or not we can trust the data. That, and the forecasts about Russia, whether or not and where you get that data from, because if it's provided by the Russian government, how do we believe it, quite frankly? Where does the data come from and how much can we trust it? There's a desire by these big institutions to put out forecasts on each country, right. but as we can imagine, the quality of the data differs substantially by country. There's an effort to verify from other sources, but the reality is we, there's, there's not very much in terms of uh, double checking of data, uh, for example, on Russia. You know, we had that experience in the past in the Soviet Union. Uh, there were, they, they were they were putting out data uh, that was way bigger than their actual GDP. It was kind of pretend. Remember the communist mantra was, we pretend to pay you and you pretend to work, which meant that the actual GDP was way below uh, what, they, what the uh, projected or what the uh, uh, data showed. Is it fair to say we could be in a similar situation today where the projections are far better for the Russian economy, the suffering of the Russian economy could be far greater as a result of the sanctions than is portrayed by your own estimates, because as you're saying, they're best guesses, basically. That's right. And I, I think uh, life is hard in Russia because they're excluded from traveling to many parts of the world. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they've seen their, their, uh, their supply chains have to change dramatically, brain which drain. creates brain drain shortages, young people moving out of Russia because they don't want to be a part of the war. So it, it, the GDP numbers are not capturing the reality uh, of the, the horror of this war. In Ukraine, there's better data because uh, people are daily engaged in the receipts and in the, in, the, in, the, in the payments. So it's showing a really harsh hit on the people of Ukraine as well. David, final question. Couple more months here at the World Bank. I know you have many things that you're interested in and as we've discussed, 
um, debt talks are a, a, an ongoing progression. Any regrets? What are you excited about? I know you've got a busy two months before you leave, huh. but what's the game plan? I just came from a panel on sustainable finance. It's really interesting from a market standpoint uh, because markets have to adjust and figure out how they're going to, going to participate in global public goods. That's one interesting future topic. I think uh, um, for me, what, I've want, what I wanted to do on day one coming in was have everyone recognize the goal is better outcomes, good outcomes for people in developing countries. That's a, that's a focused mission. And so all of our work through crisis after crisis, the massive work by World Bank staff uh, to get a huge surge, two surges in finance done in, uh, for COVID and now for the, uh, for the inflation food crisis that's going on. Uh, I've been very proud of that. Uh, and it gives you know a path for the future that you have to have some institutions that can react quickly and have management that really gets engaged and uh, the World Bank team has been awesome. Yeah, well, I think that's the message. The team's been awesome, David. Great to chat to you as always. Thank sure. you so much. Thanks. The World Bank president there, certainly not slowing down. <laughs> hmm. Okay, we're going to take a break. Coming up after this, Richard Quest joins us. We'll discuss the talks here at the IMF. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Let me give you a look at how markets, stock markets are trading in the United States. We are 20 minutes into the session. Of course, it is the beginning, really, of earnings season. And we've heard from some of the biggest banks in the United States. JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, all reporting better than expected results. As we were discussing earlier on the show, though, the big banks have benefited, I think, from some of the broader uncertainty that we've seen. What we really want to hear is what the smaller banks are saying. We also got some U.S. retail sales numbers falling 1% last month. You'd expect that in light, I think, again, of the banking sector volatility that we saw in Silicon Valley banks collapse. The question is what happens here on out for U.S. retail sales? No shortage of things to discuss, of course, and I'm very excited to say Richard Quest joins me now. Richard, you are a celebrity here at the International Monetary no. Fund. There's so many handshaking and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I feel I, practically invisible. No, 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 I'm not even going to go there. Look, there was a demonstration outside oh. the IMF and World Bank. It happens every year in some shape or form, but they're getting more sophisticated. They've worked out a way to stop the traffic without actually stopping the traffic. I mean, in the sense of they now had a band this morning, a man playing Fantastic. an instrument that was outside the, the IMF. And uh, oh, there you are. Oh, oh. And you can see on this major thoroughfare right through Washington, <coughs> there is no traffic moving in any direction. And all it takes is one person uh, to do it. That's fantastic. Cancel the debt is the message. That's what they're saying. Cancel the debt, which, as you have been talking about with the president of the World so Bank important. and others, it's going to be the sleeping, the sleeping ticking time bomb. It, I mean, if, no, it's a perfect metaphor, quite frankly. We've got two stories. We've got low growth in the richest nations. They need to do um, reform policy to boost growth. And then we need to allow some of the emerging market developing nations um, breathing room the key, to take decisions. The key is this higher for longer. If it's higher for longer, that's going to punish the developing nations even more. Debt or interest rates or both? Well, no, both. Yes. Both, absolutely. This is the key. They will be having to renew debt. And co corporations, by the way, will be facing exactly the same problems when they come to roll over their corporate debt and bonds. So this higher for longer to beat inflation because they messed it up the first time. Yes. 
will be the big problem. And actually that's part of the crux of what the IMF said coming into this, that interest rates will have to go back down again very quickly once the inflation is handled, simply because the sustainability metric... It's not going to be handled. Oh my goodness, that's a separate debate. Look at the core inflation numbers. Just look at them. Higher in the United States. Exactly. Yes. So, Mohammed El Arian, though, said yes. to us earlier about the inflation thing that actually policymakers are just going to have to lie to us and say that we're heading back towards target, but understanding that oh. those low inflation numbers are from the past. Well, that will create an interesting thing yeah. because the markets won't be fooled, but they'll choose to look the other way. So, the moment the market hears that maybe 3% or 3.5% is an acceptable number, even though it breaches the pivot idea, the market will... thinks the Fed's going to cut rates. Yeah. If they cut rates before the end of the year, I will buy you dinner in the restaurant of your choice. Really? What if they don't, though? Will you still buy me dinner? Just I, of course me. I'll still buy you dinner, <laughs> but it'll be the restaurant of my choice. Oh, OK. I think we'll probably agree on that. Do you tell you what? We're smiling, and I do think this is an important point to make about these spring meetings because there was a sort of doom and gloom I think from the headline and the deep uncertainty but the story and the message I've really been getting is that we could have been in a far worse position today the US economy's resilient China's reopened Europe yep. stronger than could have been we expected are yeah rowing the boat now doing the hard work of getting where we need to go and it's just trudge but it's not as bad as it could have been it's spring the tulips are out yes, outside they are. the protesters are out with their musical interludes yeah but tough decisions still have to be made and high uncertainty um more work to be done richard you're back with uh, crespin's business later on i'm I off to I do I a panel i thought i might pop in and do a bit of broadcasting oh fantastic thank you and then we'll go get dinner <laughs> you're paying <laughs> first move here at the International Monetary Fund and World Bank Spring Meetings, which is back later, as he mentioned. Thank you for watching. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.